Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. So during Lent, we've been um, taking time to ponder the seven deadly sins. And we've talked about pride, envy, we've talked about greed. Today we're going to talk about anger. Anger is a, a little trickier to work with, I found, because anger or wrath is in Scripture predominantly talked about in negative terms. It's usually thought of as a destructive vice. And certainly in the Christian tradition, when you go back to the desert fathers and the mothers, to the monastics, as you go into most of our older teachers, anger was often referred to as this overwhelming passion that could destroy our reason and destroy relationships. At the same time, there's also a very vibrant contrary witness in the Bible. In Ephesians, Paul tells us to be angry and don't sin. There's a kind of anger at evil and destruction, at the degrading realities of our world. Not the unhinged, demeaning anger, but another kind of anger that actually seems right and necessary. This kind of anger does not own us or overwhelm us or fuel our distance from others, but it rather jolts us from passivity. It rouses our courage. It prompts us to act. It prompts us to move towards something that is deeply good. You don't read um, the Bible very long until you find out that God gets angry. And yet God is love, complete love. God is perfection. How are anger and love, which are often at odds with one another, how are they rightly joined? And it seems to me that if we miss either God's anger or God's love, we miss something crucial about God. Something that eventually will lead us to perverted pictures of God and ruinous lies about God, lies about ourselves. Jesus reveals for us true humanity, what it looks like to be human in ways that are fully alive, fully present in this world, and yet entirely holy, free of any taint of evil, any impure motives, free of harm. Hear the words from Mark, chapter 3. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. And some of them, some of the religious leaders, were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, What is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? to save life or to kill. But they remained silent. 
He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So you know the story is not going to go well when you read from the very beginning that the religious leaders are lurking in the corner trying to catch Jesus breaking the Sabbath. They've set a trap. They know that a man with a shriveled hand or somebody with some kind of need is in the synagogue. And Jesus, they know, is about to be in the synagogue too. And all the pieces of the chessboard are coming along perfectly. Is Jesus going to heal this man on the Sabbath day? The religious leaders knew that God's commandment was not to work on the Sabbath. But they had had a real time with this rule. They had interpreted all kinds of work that could not happen on the Sabbath day of rest, adding all kinds of rules, taking something that was intended as a gift and making it a heavy obligation, bound to all kinds of minutia and theological parsing and just lots and lots of rules. Us religious types like to add on lots and lots of rules. Now, Surely, this healing on the Sabbath rule must have been a, a recent invention. You can't imagine that this was something that was happening a whole lot. But they had crafted this rule, and probably maybe even in response to Jesus, they had said, no, uh, actually, you're not supposed to be doing that. And I love how Jesus didn't pull this guy to the side and sort of just take care of him, you know, on the sly. Jesus says, hey, why don't you stand up here at center stage? And he calls out so that everyone can hear, spread out your hand. And he does. And he asks this question to everyone who's there. So what do you think is actually lawful to do on the Sabbath? To give life or to take it? To do good or to do evil? And the religious leaders just look at each other. No one says a word. I mean, how are you going to respond to this question? And Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man with the shriveled hand, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and he was restored. So Jesus was angry at injustice and angry for a man who was a victim, a pawn. Gary at Kaiser says, I'm unable to commit to any Messiah who does not knock over some tables. And here Jesus is knocking over a few more tables. He's angry when someone is pushed to the side. He's angry when someone is used for unrighteous means. He's angry when a, a person is simply a pawn for a power game. And yet it seems that Jesus was also angry at how those trying to catch Jesus, had strayed so far from who they were meant to be. Rebecca Young reminds us that Jesus loved the Pharisees too. 
that Jesus was angry at how they would not allow God's love to reach them. What would it do to us in this story to see God's anger being both on the behalf of the man with the shriveled hand and on behalf of the religious leaders with the shriveled hearts? Jesus loves the oppressed, and Jesus loves the oppressor. Remember that a vice is a distortion of something good. And righteous anger has not been distorted, but stayed connected to that thing that is good. Righteous anger is not rage. It is not an emotion that overwhelms us and colors us red. Righteous anger does not make another person into an enemy. Righteous anger wants to rescue, not harm. Righteous anger seeks wholeness, not revenge. The German philosopher Joseph Piper spoke of anger as a resistance of the soul. And whenever Jesus is angry, whenever the Father is angry, there is a resistance to those things that shame, ruin, degrade, debase, rob, and steal from the good kingdom that God intends for us to know. Our anger, like God, is a righteous anger whenever we are belligerently resistant to those degrading evil realities in us, around us, whenever we resist those things that turn us against the good, turn us against God, whenever we resist those things that harm us or harm someone else, that is a righteous anger. Aquinas said that sometimes not being able to get angry is actually a problem because it can reveal apathy. It can reveal an inability or an unwillingness to move or act. This last week, uh, Miska was at her acupuncturist and started having this conversation and was sharing how she uh, had been really wrestling with a lot of shame. I need to go to this acupuncturist, right? To have these kind of conversations. And uh, her acupuncturist looked at her and said, you know, it sounds to me like you need to get angry. I've been thinking about that ever since. What does it look like to actually get angry at those things that harm us and harm someone else? Now, this is all true. It's also still true that on the whole, the scripture assumes that most of the time our anger isn't righteous. That most of the time we're not just resisting wrong, but rather that we're operating out of a wounded ego or a sense of personal grievance, that we're taking vengeance into our own hands, that we're showing and revealing an unbridled heart as we vent and spew on those around us, or perhaps even more sinister as we smolder in internal rage with a smile on the outside. If you want to talk about scriptures talking about rage, we could just list them for the next 15 minutes, which I won't do. But just hear a few of these warnings to the wise. Fools give full vent to their rage, 
but the wise bring calm in the end. Don't be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. But now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language. When you look into the New Testament, the epistles, there's uh, a number of words about anger. One in particular is when James wrote to a community that was pierced by suffering. They'd been assaulted by every kind of hardship. They had been pulled at the seams by endless divisions and vitriol. They were travailing under the oppression of wealthy elites who owned the system and milked it for all that it's worth and pushed whoever they could to the side to get more. They had no concern for who it damaged. So in this community, there's a lot of anxiety. And we could say that we could understand how there'd be outbursts of anger with all this anxiety and conflict. It's justified. It's human. But this is what James says. My dear sisters and brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For a person's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. A person's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And Facebook just closed up shop. <laughs> I love how he says slow to become angry. He doesn't say never become angry. He said become slow to become angry. I wonder if more often than not, the kind of anger that is unrighteous is not the kind that comes slow. It's the kind that bursts forward and overwhelms. Our anger does not bring about God's righteousness. And that word for righteous can also be translated justice. Our anger does not bring about God's justice because it is always in some way connected to our self-absorbed ego. It's fueled by our fears, our demands. The bloated ego is never quick to listen, slow to speak. Our anger, fueled by a self-righteous motivation, and this is a, a really tricky thing, is anger often can be very well justified because anger is reacting to some kind of injustice, either real or perceived. But the question about righteous anger and unrighteous anger is not necessarily in what it's responding to, it's in how we respond. For all of its physical force and fury, Rebecca DeYoung says, anger also has a wily way of duping, duping our reasoning powers to justify itself. Wrath is self-promoting, but in a dressed up self-righteous way. Unrighteous anger often obliterates or dehumanizes the person who's wronged us. I know that I've, I think I, I've shared this story before, but every time I think about this, about the obliteration of the other person, I think about a story when I was uh, in the first church that I served out of seminary, and I was a, 
an associate pastor, and um, the pastor I was serving under was a real tool. And um, <clears throat> he, was, he was just awful. And um, about, I'd served there about two years, and he called me into his office and raked me over the coals and essentially told me, I mean, almost verbatim, that I was an awful pastor and worthless and, and essentially fired me. And I walked out of that office, and I just had never had that kind of encounter with a spiritual leader before. And my head was spinning, you know, and over the next year or two, um, I mean, it was, we needed to leave. That was a, that was a blessing. But um, it was really disorienting. But about three or four years later, I found myself repeatedly having these fantasies in my mind of getting even with this guy. And this is something that's kind of embarrassing to talk about because only a pastor would have this kind of fantasy, you know. Um, but in this guy's world, the most important thing in the world would be to preach to a large crowd, okay? And all y'all say, like, what's the big deal? Um, that's, that's the big deal. And I would have this fantasy of being at some massive conference, you know, like 15,000 people, like in a stadium somewhere. And the fantasy I had was me at the front, mesmerizing this massive crowd. I mean, just the words were beautiful and people were falling out of their chairs. Um, and and, and I, in my fantasy, this pastor was the very, 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 very back seat in the cheap rows. He couldn't even, couldn't even get close. And in my fantasy, this pastor was just looking at this and just recognizing the great travesty of his ways and how I actually wasn't useless, right? It's kind of funny, maybe now. I could tell you in the grip of that moment, there, was, there, wasn't, there wasn't anything funny about that. Because in my mind and heart, I didn't really want justice to be done. I wanted that guy to pay. I wanted him to know I was something and he was small. Anger uses the cause of justice to do injustice, to retaliate, to dehumanize. This may be a particular temptation to those immersed in the work of justice, is to respond to, ju to injustice with another version of injustice. Whenever I think about this, I think about how Jesus is able to step in with strength, courage, tenacity. He doesn't abide in justice, but he always extends immense love and grace, even to those who do wrong. And there's a man who's a hero of mine who I always think of in this moment. I have a picture of him. His name is John Perkins. I know a number of you know him. And the Perkins house is named after, after this man. And I don't know... If you can really, if maybe you have to know him and have encountered him, but there is something in his eyes that is both strong and immensely gracious. And I've been in occasions where he has interacted with people who didn't care for what he had to say. And I have always been shocked and astounded at the way he responds to people and at how he has learned in his 80-something years now how to not retaliate 
toward injustice with injustice. And there is a kind of wide generosity and graciousness with him that is always pulling people in. And I'll tell you this, if you've been with John Perkins for more than an hour and you're still ticked off at him, there is something severely wrong with you. <laughs> because there is a, an authority matched with a generosity that is profound. And I think um, every once in a while, we need to encounter actually a human being who is very much like Jesus. And this is not about hero worship, but this is about saying there are actually people who have learned to follow in the way of Jesus and become a different kind of human. And we can do that too. So God's invitation is to let our ego go. To forgive. To release our anger that seeks to destroy. And instead to embrace the courage to love boldly, even fiercely but to let the anger go. So each week we're giving a practice, and there's two things that we can do to move against an unjust anger. One is gentleness. I'll be honest with you, I'm not, gentleness is something I, I, I really want more of in my life, and I've actually for about three years now been asking God to help me learn how to be more gentle. I'm not really sure in real practical terms how to do this. This is where I'm landing right now. Is when I'm with someone and I'm tempted to not be gentle, to look that person in the eye, to truly see them, that person in front of me, not what they've done, not my picture of them, not all my fantasies of them against them, but to receive in that moment that image bearer of God in front of me. It's a way of dropping our shoulders and dropping our guard. It's a way of dropping our defensiveness. And it's a way of saying, I'm going to offer you kindness. Not because I've got a ton of it to give you, but because I believe that the God who loves me is offering you kindness. And the second is forgiveness. Is there someone who invokes rage in you? Someone who has in some way failed to come through for you or harmed you? or thwarted something or some path you insist upon? Has your history with this person taken on a life of its own, fueling fantasies and anger? If so, forgive. Will you pray with me? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.